This morning I'm going to bring to you the second part of a two-part message on the two most dangerous men in the world. Last Sunday we looked at the first ten verses of chapter 13 of the book of Revelation and we met that first uh, man, a man that we better know as the Antichrist, who is going to gain control of the entire world. This morning we're going to meet the second most dangerous man in the world, and he's revealed in the last part of that uh, chapter, verses 11 through 18. But before we meet this man, it's going to be helpful if we review and get a better understanding of the scene, the world setting, uh, out of which this man's going to appear. World conditions will be absolutely catastrophic. Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about that about what is going on that makes it so catastrophic. I believe the Lord will have come in the air and taken every genuine believer up to heaven, as the scripture describes that event as happening in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so very quickly. And uh, that's going to result in throwing the world into utter chaos, and it it lacks words to describe the vast devastation. It really is incomprehensible. We try our best to do it, and we've seen uh, major destructions like uh, volcanic eruptions and tsunamis and earthquakes and so forth, but nothing will compare, I believe, to this event when it takes place. And then, with the church and all the true believers gone, the seven-year tribulation is going to begin. And remember, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, the Lord comes back, and He engages in warfare with all the nations of the world that are the armies that are gathered in what we call Armageddon. He slaughters off all those nations. He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet, those two beasts, casts them alive into the lake of fire. He takes Satan and he binds him for a thousand years in the abyss, the bottomless pit. And then he begins his millennial reign with the remnant that is saved of Israel that becomes a nation overnight, being the premier nation of the world. But let's go back to the start. I want to take you back to the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. I think that J.A. Sace will help us to grasp world conditions when it began. Now, he wrote in the 1800s, so it's a little bit different flavor, but I think you'll appreciate what he writes. I quote him now, As a necessary concomitant and result, we are further told of a perturbed, restless, and disabled condition in political affairs, a weakening of the laws, an unmanageableness of things of state and social order, making all the formulae and codes of none effect, and engulfing the whole world in a quagmire of confusion from which there is no retreat, and whence the only prospect is of worse disaster ahead. The Savior assures us that as before the flood, the earth was corrupt before God and was filled with violence, justice and law having been supplanted by the base will of the corrupt multitude, so it shall be when the present world nears its end. Sounds like today, doesn't it? He goes on, besides, it is a time when the patience of God is about wearied out with the perverseness and inventions of the wicked, when judgment has commenced, when the one who hinders the revelation of the man of sin is taken away, uh, 
When the Holy Ghost, so long grieved and insulted, begins to withdraw from the world, then approaching its doom. When the holiest and best of earth's population is taken away, caught up to the heavenly pavilion, when the very candlestick of sacred illumination is removed, when they that love not the truth are given over, judicially blinded, and allowed a loose rein to believe lies and hasten their own damnation. When the doors of the abyss are unlocked, and the powers of perdition are given wider liberties. And when Satan is angered to the intensest degree, because he knows that he hath but a short time. And in this crisis and condition of things, when evil is ready to bloom forth in final maturity, and every form of, its, of, of it is confluent, and all that impeded it has well nigh disappeared, the great embodiment of hell's subtlety and deceit begins his ministry. The world, having rejected the evangel of God, is therefore ripe and ready for the gospel of the devil, and his great apostle comes. End of quote. We met the devil's great apostle last week, the Antichrist, in the first ten verses of Revelation 13. There he is described as a beast that comes out of the sea. The sea is used later in Revelation to speak of the masses of humanity, and Daniel used it to speak of the Mediterranean area. And it's thought that this man will therefore come out of the sea of humanity, being a Gentile, and most likely be from the Mediterranean area. But he is seen by John to be a very frightening figure. He doesn't see him as a man. He sees him as a beast having seven heads and ten horns and ten diadems on, on, those, on those horns, as well as blasphemous names. And that description is just like the description given of the great red dragon in chapter 12, verse 3. Like father, like son, because he indwells this man. But that description uh, is of a wild, vicious, ferocious beast, animal. It would be utterly frightening to take on such an animal with just one head. But here he's described as having seven heads that are ferocious and so forth. It is further stated that the dragon gave this ferocious, dreadful beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Now that's coming, folks. That's what's coming to the world. And we're also told that one of his heads was as if it had been slain, but the fatal wound was healed, causing the whole world, the whole world to go after him, follow after the beast, and to worship him. We saw last week that the beast is both a kingdom, I believe it's a revived Roman Empire, but it's also the man that heads that kingdom, actually making out of that an eighth kingdom, who is none other than the Antichrist. And just as the Lord Jesus Christ was violently killed, and then on the third day rose again, so the Antichrist pulls off a similar resurrection. Was it real? We don't know. Or deceived. But most think that it will be deceptive because, uh, not a literal one, but still, the world will be absolutely convinced that it was real. But we're getting ahead of our story. We need to go back to the first time we first met this most dangerous of all 
men in the world. And that was over in chapter 6. And you'll recall in chapter 6 that the Lord Jesus Christ there broke the first of the seven seals. And when he broke that seal, it says there went forth a white horse and a rider on the white horse having a bow, but no arrows. And he went out to conquering and to conquer. And so somehow he is a very persuasive, powerful man that is able to offer peace to the world. He conquers and gains more and more power and territory, and evidently he makes a covenant or enters into a covenant of peace with Israel. So that's where we first met him. We meet him again in chapter 11 as a beast that comes up out of the abyss, and he's able to slay God's two witnesses, those prophets that prophesied for 1260 days or three three and one-half years. It's very possible that he gets into power because of the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, where evidently Russia and its satellites come down and attack Israel. But in their attempt to attack and destroy Israel, God intervenes and miraculously destroys an entire army. And I think it's possible that Antichrist may take credit for that. That's also recorded for you in Daniel chapter 11. And perhaps that's why the world gives him their allegiance. But remember, the whole world is disheveled. It is utter chaos and destruction. In fact, we're told that one-fourth of the world's population is slaughtered off, dies, during evidently the first three and one-half years as those six seals are broken. That's 1,750,000,000 people die. Can you imagine such a death of people throughout the whole world? That gives you a little bit of an idea how chaotic the world will be, and they always look for a deliverer when you're in a situation like that. In desperation, they're looking for somebody, and Satan will have his man available at that time. But now we come to the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Three and a half years have gone by now. Do you remember what happens then? Chapter 12, that great war with Michael, that archangel and his righteous angels in in conflict with Satan and his angels that are up there. And Satan and his angels loose and they're cast down to the earth and they're restrained, they're restricted there to the earth. And it says that Satan comes with great wrath for he knows that he has but a short time left. Yeah, it's even recorded three and one half years is what he has left at that time. And so he's filled with great wrath. And what is his great purpose that he knows he must implement? He wants to set up a one world government completely under his control. And are we not moving that way today? Yes, that's his goal. It was back there on in the Tower of Babel, a one world government. Why? Because he wants to absolutely annihilate Israel, the Jew. He knows that God has put His affection and His plan upon the Jew. He knows the Scriptures. He knows it in all the languages. And He knows God's plan. But He says, if I can get in and destroy the Jew, if I can destroy Israel, then God will not be able to bring about His plan. And so the number one object of His venom and hatred and wrath becomes the Jewish people as well as any that follow Jesus during this tribulation period. And we'll see that a little bit later on. But His one all-purpose goal, not only to destroy Israel, 
So the Lord can't come back and set up His kingdom. But His one purpose is, I will be like God. I want the whole world to worship Me. And now is His hour. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So now Satan finds himself cast out of heaven and restricted to this earth. But he is a spirit being. And as a spirit being, he needs a human body. He needs a person that he might indwell him. And you'll remember that just before the Lord began his three and a half years of public ministry, the the Holy Spirit led him out in the wilderness, the desert, to be tempted to prepare him for that ministry, to show that he would not fall to sin, that he was perfect in all of his ways. And what did the devil do there? He somehow showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time, and he said, listen, if you'll but bow down and what? Worship me. I'll give you all these kingdoms. You need not go to the cross. Now... He has found the man who will willingly, gladly take up that offer. And he will infuse him. He will indwell him. You see, just as there is a holy trinity, and we sang that song, holy, 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 there is an unholy trinity. You see, Satan always tries to duplicate God. And so Satan, he is like God the Father. He becomes the God in his unholy trinity. And then, of course, just as Jesus was violently killed and brought back to life, we have the Antichrist, which means like Christ or against Christ. And you read what? That he also received that mortal wound, that sword wound. And what did he do? Came back to life. And then you have the false prophet. What does the Holy Spirit do? He points you and me to Jesus Christ. That's his goal and his mission. You read that in John. He points people to Jesus Christ. What does the false prophet do? He points people to the Antichrist, that first beast. And so he has his unholy trinity. And that brings us to the first part of your outline. If you would like to use that, it's in your bulletin. First part of your outline, the major part, the second most dangerous man comes on the world scene. The second most dangerous man comes on the world scene. To get the bigger picture, let me read verses 11 through 18 at this time. You're aware that chapter 13 introduces you to two beasts. This is the second one. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to that beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and great 
and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of the name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of the man of a man, and his number is 666. Probably one of the most familiar uh, emblems of Scripture that we have there, that 666. The second most dangerous man in the, is, comes on the world scene. First, John's description of him. We begin there, John's description of him, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. As a beast. His description is that as a beast that comes out, up out of the earth. Once again, this description of this person as a beast magnifies his ferocious, dangerous, vicious, deadly nature. And the fact that John sees this beast coming up out of the earth in contrast to the first beast that came up out of the sea may be telling us that he comes from the land around Palestine. We don't know for certain. But I thought it was interesting because there is a cross-reference that you might be familiar with. It's found in 1 Samuel twenty-eight thirteen. You recall Saul was about to come to the end of his life, King Saul. And he was seeking out something, uh, information from Samuel who had died. And so he found this medium, this witch. And he asked her to conjure up whoever he wished. And of course, you know, it was Samuel. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel twenty-eight thirteen. The king said to her, that's Saul, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Interesting. Perhaps then this beast coming up out of the earth has to do with the spirit world, since he too will be indwelt and completely controlled by the powerful demons of Satan. Number B, his description of him is as possessing two horns like a lamb. Two horns like a lamb. What a contrast. He's seen as a wild, ferocious beast, and yet, wait a minute, a second look, it's a lamb. It's a little lamb with horns, little bumps on its head. Evidently, the horns refer to the fact that it's male and speaks of its strength, of the strength it will have and so forth. But as being seen as a lamb certainly focuses on his religious character and nature. In Israel, lambs, as you know, were used for sacrifice. They were used for their worship services. But notice number C as speaking like a dragon. When this lamb makes a noise, it doesn't bleat. Striking. When it makes a noise, you hear the roar of a lion, a dragon, I'm sorry. Like the first beast, he belongs completely to the great red dragon, better known as Satan or the devil. He possesses him and he empowers him. But observe what is being said to the reader. Don't miss it. What is being said to the reader? And this might be the heart and the crux of the message for you and me who are saved. What is being said to the reader? This is utter deception. The world, by the great master deceiver, is deceiving all of them. It's utter deception. Satan uses this man to deceive the whole world. How does he do that? How does he do that? Well, point number two. 
tells us how. Number two, John's later revelation of him as the false prophet. Here's the later revelation of him. There he describes him as the false prophet. Look up with me three times it comes up. Chapter 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits. That's your unholy trinity. Here he calls him, this second beast, the false prophet. Look at chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. You can't miss it. This second beast is called the false prophet. And then a third entry there, chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil was to, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, this will be an urgent time in the world of utter chaos that the masses are going to seek for a trustworthy voice to believe in and a prophet will arise. Now remember, don't miss the picture. It is worldwide Chaos. Absolute utter destruction. I mentioned after the first three and a half years, you've got 1,750,000,000 people that have lost their lives. Worldwide chaos. What do you do? You look for a Savior. You look for somebody to come. Somebody who has an answer. And here comes a prophet who has the answers and the world will readily glom onto him. Look at verse 17, verse 8. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names has not been written in the book of life with from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. And this is the person the false prophet is going to point their attention to for the hope that they are so desperately longing for. And what does a prophet do? By the way, it's interesting because they had two other prophets. They're called the two witnesses. You record, we talked about them over in chapter 11. What did they do? It says they prophesied for 1260 days. God gave them the revelation. God gave them the message they needed to hear, but they refused that. And I imagine they blamed those two prophets, as we'll see next week, for a lot of the chaos and destruction. They refused them. Give us somebody we want to hear. Somebody that'll tell us what we want to hear. And give us the hope that we want, because we certainly do not want to turn to God. That's what the prophet does. A prophet is supposed to know God, hear God, reveal truth from God to the people. And this man is seen by the world to be that kind of a prophet. And he is in reality, what? A false prophet. He will be the great red dragon's deadly deception to the whole world. You begin to see why he is one of the two most dangerous men in the world. You can see it. That brings us to our second major movement in the outline. The second most dangerous man enforces worldwide worship of Antichrist. He enforces worldwide worship 
of Antichrist. Well, number one, he uses the world's awe over Antichrist's resurrection. The world is awed. I mean, they're just captivated by this. And he uses the world's awe over Antichrist's resurrection. Three times in chapter 13, your attention is drawn to the first beast's supposed resurrection. Now, maybe it was a real one. I can't argue that point. But three times. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And then here in verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Healed, And now for a third time, drop down to verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Three times. Emphasis is this man died and was brought back to life. And again, we saw that in chapter 17, verse 8, which I previously read. It talks about coming up out of the abyss. You can't but wonder if maybe this resurrection has to do with Satan coming up out of the abyss to indwell him. And some have even included this person coming up out of the abyss is no other than Judas Iscariot coming back to life. But, does Satan have the power to create life? Most Bible scholars say no. But he certainly does have some, do something that convinces the entire world that this man has been slain and has been brought back to life. Remember, Satan is a counterfeiter and master deceiver. Since Jesus, the Son of God, was violently slain and the third day came back to life, not only that, Perhaps by this time the whole world has watched as those two witnesses that the beast coming up out of the abyss, the Antichrist, was able to murder and left their bodies for three and a half days out there in the street of Jerusalem. And then suddenly, the whole world is shocked as they watch. They come, the life comes back into them. They stand on their feet and they go right back up into heaven. And Satan says, I will not be outdone. My man also will experience a resurrection, or at least I will deceive the whole world in believing that he has had such. Well, whatever the case, the whole world is convinced that this man has been raised from the dead and the false prophet uses the world's awe to enforce enforce worldwide worship of this beast, the Antichrist. Not only is the whole world awed by the beast, though, whose fatal wound is healed, the masses are awed by the great signs the false prophet performs that affirm his position. Would you keep that in mind? Because I'm afraid that's where a lot of the church is today. Great signs, wonders, miracles. If only I could see them. If only I could participate in them. You'd make a believer out of me. Huh. He actually causes fire, the text says, to come down out of heaven to the earth. Well, that should be nothing new. You know that God, or that is, uh, Satan did that in Job's day, killing off all of his sheep and servants. Job chapter 1 tells us about that. 
And the Jews were expecting Elijah to appear. By the way, that's how their Bible concludes. That is, Malachi does the last chapter, the last few verses, that I will send my prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And guess what? What do we know about Elijah? Remember the great contest on Mount Carmel up there and let fire come down? And suddenly now Elijah's going to appear. That's what the Bible says. I remember Ahab, that wicked king, you know, Jezebel was his wife, and he sent this, uh, these, this captain with his 50 men soldiers to go apprehend Elijah who was up on top of this hill. He said, if I'm a prophet of God, let fire come down and consume you right now. Whoosh! Cinders. And, uh, Ahab sent 50 more soldiers and a captain. And they said, you're to come down, they're going to apprehend him. He said, if I'm a prophet of God, let fire come down and consume you. And whoosh! There again, third guy was wise. He said, oh, have mercy on me. Elijah, have mercy on me, please. Just come down and do what the king says, but spare my life and the lives of these 50 people. You see, they ain't understood about Elijah. Now you've got a prophet in their midst who's able to call fire down from heaven. You might also remember the two witnesses were able to do that. Beware of miracle workers. Beware in these last days of miracle workers. You better check very, very carefully what they believe. The scriptures. In these last days, you see the world... And listen, these were real miracles. They were actually great signs. God even warned Israel through Moses about those who would come and perform actual signs and miracles and lead them away from the written word of God. You might remember that in Deuteronomy. And the world longs for miracles and signs and wonders, and they're going to get them, dear ones. They're going to get them. But Jesus sternly warned us to beware. For false prophets and false Christs will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect. I'm troubled because I know that the church is totally gullible in so many areas. You have to ask yourself, if you saw, if you were, if you were, saw an actual miracle, what would it do to you? I mean, you, you, you could verify. It was a genuine, actual miracle. And then they just had a little bit off color in what they taught. Just present an actual miracle or sign before the masses of Christians, I think, and they will readily believe it was a work of God. Isn't that true? It's a miracle. It's got to be of God. Did you get that? It's a miracle. It's got to be of God. No, it does not have to be of God. Tell people you died and went to heaven. You saw Jesus' rainbow horse. And I'll tell you, the masses of Christians will believe it. They'll believe it. Jesus warns us. These days are coming. Beware. I remember... The missionary Bob Peterson, I spent a lot of time with him, Mary and I did, in our first church out of seminary down in the Eugene area. He was a missionary, his wife, uh, in uh, West Kalimantan, Indonesia area there. He told about the high priest, and he said, I went out there just curious 
seeker, you know. I watch. I said, he said, I watch. They made ladders with the sharp point edges of the sword, and he barefooted would climb clear up on those those ladders clear up there, and he would take a sword and run it clear through him. You'd seek him out the back and pull it out. No scar, no blood. They talk about the prophet's chair. The prophet's chair in that particular uh, village was a chair, a hard-constructed hard chair, and it had sharp, very sharp-pointed bamboo pulls or, or, or uh, cuts, as well as glass shards. And whoever was the one that the demon chose to be their priest or priestess, I should say prophet or prophetess, would literally spring. This chair was on the, the shoulders of two different guys. They literally spring up and land, crash right on all those sharp points and all that shard. Not a, not a harm at all. No hurt whatsoever. Yeah, Satan knows how to pull off miracles. Believe me, beyond what we understand. If Christians are taken in by these miracles, how easy will it be for Satan to deceive the masses of the unsaved? Listen, our sure protection is what? The written Word of God. You need to know that. I need to know that. No matter what you hear, no matter what you see, your only protection, your sure protection is the written Word of God. Because the world is going to get miracles. Jesus guaranteed it, that they're going to get miracles. Paul describes this very scene recorded in Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Here's what he says. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It's the truth. You're to receive, not miracles. For this reason, God, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. You don't want to believe the truth? God says, I'll send you miracles then. You don't want to believe the absolute written word of God? I'll send you miracles. As he said here, that he might send upon them a deluding influence. Well, number A, under the second most dangerous man forces the worldwide worship of Antichrist, he uses the world's awe over Antichrist's resurrection. Number A, he has the people make an image of the beast. He has the people make an image of the beast. The Bible speaks, by the way. Now, I want you to follow me a little history here. The Bible speaks to what's called the times of the Gentiles. What's that? It meant the time when Israel ceased being an independent nation and was under the dominion of Gentile world powers and nations. It began in 586 when Judah or Judea fell to Babylonia, Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, you remember Daniel and his three friends went into captivity at that particular time. And the old king Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Tie it together. Tie it together, folks. He had a dream. And he said to his wise men, you have to tell me both the dream, which they thought was very unfair. I'm glad I wasn't one of his wise men. And you also have to tell me the interpretation of it. 
They couldn't do it except for Daniel, who God gave him that that insight. He goes in, he says, you had a dream of this great, huge, metallic man. The head was of gold, and that is you, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then the 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 chest and the arms are silver and all the way down. Different kingdoms and so forth. It all had to do with uh, the people of Israel being under the domination of Gentile world powers. Well, that impressed King Nebuchadnezzar. What did he do? Well, I'm the head of gold. I'm the powerful sovereign over the whole world. I want to be worshipped. I want to consolidate my entire kingdom and bring all these religions, all these people that I have subjugated, I want to bring them together into one. How am I going to do that? I know what. I want an image made of me. And so out on the plain of Dura, they made that image. This is the beginning of what you call the times of the Gentiles. And of course, the decree was, when you hear all that music, you bow down and worship that image. And if not, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. You will be killed. What do we have here? Now we have the very end of the times of the Gentiles. And the last world power under this superhuman man, the Antichrist, with this false prophet. And what does he say to do? Make an image of him that all the world may be consolidated into one and bow down and worship this man or they will be killed. Exactly as it began. Number B, he evidently places the image in the Jews' temple. You know, I had a question. Just a, I'm throwing you off base here, but it's a good reason why. Maybe you want to go hear Hadian, Shram Hadian. I was thinking about because we talked about that Jewish temple and how the world was a temple ever built, where you have the Dome of the Rock, very important mosque to the Islamic people, but I thought, you know, just a speculation on my part, if you have the 12th Imam show up, the whole world of Islamic people would listen to him. If you saw it in the plans of Satan to uh, consolidate and get the Jewish people where he wants them, if he gave the order to destroy the mosque and build that, you can build your temple, the Islamic world would respond, wouldn't they? I mean, he's the imam. He's our messiah. Is that how it worked out? I don't know. But he evidently places the image in the Jewish temple. Both Daniel and Jesus describe this as being the abomination of desolation. They abominate the temple, uh, the, uh, temple and make it so desolate people can't, Jews can't go in there. And Jesus made this sobering statement. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, where? Standing in the holy place. So evidently it's in the temple. Standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee. You must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in their house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to the one who is pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That's what you're now reading. The chapter 13. He has the people make an image to the beast. 
This will be the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan is cast out of heaven. He knows he has but a short time. Possessing the two most dangerous men in the world, he will cause Antichrist to break his covenant with Israel, and he will cause the false prophet to place the image in the holy place, in that temple. Number C, he infuses the image with breath, causing it to speak. Verse 15, he infuses the image with breath, causing it to speak. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Evidently, the false prophet by his own master, Satan, is able to impart a spirit to this image. Henry Morris says, probably a highly placed demon in the satanic hierarchy. This is a striking case of demon possession, with the demon possessing the body of the image rather than that of a man or a woman. And just as the evil spirit possessing a human being can use the vocal cords of that person to convey his own messages, so the spirit indwelling the image of the beast will utilize the complex audio animatronics apparatus with which it will be equipped to convey Satan's message. End of quote. J.A. Sace says, This image speaks. And the closest observation of all science, wisdom, and skepticism of the time is satisfied of that fact. There will be no machinery, no collusion, no make-believe, no trick or deceit about it, for the whole world is convinced the image speaks. Frightening times. Number two. The second most dangerous man enforces worldwide worship of Antichrist. Number two, he enforces worldwide worship of Antichrist by controlling the entire economy. Boy, you and I don't even have a clue about that one. Again, worldwide devastation. We've talked about that already. Unbelievable. Number eight, he he will control all classes of society throughout the world. It says there in verse 16, He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And um, verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if slain. His fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed. That's not where I wanted there. Oh, verse 7. It was also given to him to make war, this is the Antichrist, with the saints and overcome them and authority over every tribe, every tribe, every people, and tongue and nation was given to him. God just says, I'm letting Satan have it all. So he will control all classes of society throughout the world. The small and the great, that's status. The rich and the poor, that relates to possessions. The freeman and the slave, that's their state in society. Number B, he will require his mark to buy or to sell. It's required. We talked about drones. We talked about computers. We talked about credit cards. We talked about your social security. This guy will have it all. We must remember again, the world is in utter, total chaos. God's judgments are being poured out upon the earth and earth dwellers. Antichrist, the false prophet, are hunting down people. As we saw in chapter 6, over 2 billion people, or nearly 2 billion people lose their lives. There's worldwide famine, along with plagues. It's interesting about Ebola, isn't it? Plagues, 
wild animals attacking and killing people because they can't find anything to eat. I mean, it's just utter chaos. The whole economy is in shambles and strict rationing of all commodities will be enforced. You're not going to be able, even with the mark, you're not going to be able to go to a grocery store and buy food or get food. It'll be strict rationing. You've got to imagine what kind of chaos you're talking about here. And he controls it all. Why? Because he wants to control people. You will not be able to go into any grocery store or gas station or even think about going down to Ace Hardware and get stuff. You won't be able to do it. Even if it's there. And by the way, you try it. You try it. Because God says, the Lord says, the people will turn on one another. They'll turn you in. And as soon as they find out that you don't have the mark, you're saying, please, my family's starving. Don't you have anything at all for my kids? Have compassion. And they turn you in. You're dead. You're dead. That's what he's talking about. I want worldwide worship. I will get it or I will slaughter you. Here's what one man said about ration cards when it was he was under the communist government in Bulgaria. I'm quoting him. He says, you cannot understand and you cannot know that the most terrible instrument of persecution ever devised is an innocent ration card. You cannot buy and you cannot sell except according to that little innocent card. If they please, you can be starved to death. And if they please, you can be dispossessed of everything you have, for you cannot trade and you cannot buy and you cannot sell without permission. End of quote. And then we have this mark, whatever it is, 666. A lot's been written on that. A lot of people have been, they've boiled it down to it's Nero, it's Henry Kissinger, it's the next president, it's, you know, on and on it goes, you know. Uh, obviously that should tell us enough. It's interesting though that there's three sixes. It's interesting that six is when man was created and he used to work for six days and the slave would serve for six years. And it always speaks of imperfection. Seven is the number of completion. And maybe it's a reference to the unholy trinity. I don't know. It just means that man constantly falls short. But he says, here is wisdom. What that means? It means the people then will understand. They will have discernment. Maybe the 144,000 saved Jewish people, the two witnesses, they'll understand back at that point what all about that number that's needed at that point. Number three, he enforces the execution of any who will not worship the beast. He enforces it. The execution of any who will not worship the beast. Number A, he uses the religious system of the world to murder any who refuse. It starts there. The religious system. That's Revelation 17. Though we meet this second beast, the false prophet here in chapter 13, we learn from chapter 17 that evidently he has been on the scene from the first part of the tribulation because he uses the religious system of the world under the direction of Antichrist in order to help Antichrist gain complete complete control of the world. Chapter 17 will reveal that. Has not Satan always used the religions of the world to accomplish his means? Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, evolution, and you can go on and on and on, add to that list. All these world religions from the beginning of time are described in chapter 17 as being of the great harlot, described as being Babylon the great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. It's a religious system, and that's how God describes it. 
This religious harlot is contrasted to the beautiful bride of Christ, who is the true, the true church of the redeemed, who worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God. What takes place is the false prophet uses this religious system of the world to get Antichrist into complete control over the earth through this one world in his one world government. The Antichrist and the ten kings who ally with him then turn on this religious system and utterly destroy her because it's God's will they do it. Let's look at that, chapter 17, the last part. Verses 15 and following. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The whole world. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. They use her to get him into power. That is the ten kings of those uh, the European market or whatever it might be and uh, the Antichrist. And then they turn on this system and destroy it. This must be about the midpoint of the tribulation. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Obviously, it's symbolical language. It's talking about that great one, that religious system that they destroy in the end. But look at verse 6 of verse seven, chapter 17. I said, he uses the religious system of the world to murder those who refuse. Look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Yes, all through the centuries, this religious system has been used to persecute those who belong to the Lord. But especially in the tribulation, Satan will use that system to slaughter those that turn to the Lord. Well, number B, there's a second way he does this. The enraged dragon pursues and wars against them. The enraged enraged dragon pursues and wars against them. What happens, dear ones, any time there's a major, major crisis? What happens? The world always looks for a scapegoat. We will blame this on to somebody. Nero did that. Burnt Rome? Who is at fault? It's those Christians. That's why the gods won't bless us because those Christians won't worship the, the emperor. What did Adolf Hitler do? Blamed it on the Jewish people, that inferior race. They must go. What will Satan do? He says, I tell you who is at fault. You Listen, you're living in the world at that time, and I trust I'm not. But you're here when that happens. And I mean, you can't get food. You've seen loved ones slaughtered before your eyes. Somebody has to be blamed. Somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to go down for this. This isn't right. And then you hear the word, it's those Christians, it's those Jews. And what does Satan do? He instills that in the minds of the people of the world. Because you saw at the end of chapter 12, he goes after that woman who is Israel, as well as those that are followers of Jesus and the commandments. And that's exactly, they find a scapegoat, and they're going to bring that scape down. That's how the enraged dragon is going to pursue and war against them. 
Number C, the image itself calls for them to be killed. (laughs) That's amazing. We read that in verse 15. The image itself calls for them to be killed. Look again at verse 7. It was given to him, that is Antichrist, to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He's, He's in control. And now the image is saying, if they don't worship the Antichrist, the beast, then they must die. I received an email, maybe some of you did as well. John, I believe you were the one that sent it to me. Because of the message in my text, it certainly resonated with me. It asked for immediate, urgent prayer for the people in the city of Erbil in Iraq. It was from a man by the name of Sean Malone who leads the Crisis Relief International. He writes this in the email, We lost the city of Korokosh. It fell to ISIS, and they are beheading children systematically. It's going to be common day in and day out in the news in chapter 13. This is a city we have been smuggling food to. ISIS is pushing back the Kurdish forces and is within 10 minutes of where our CRI team is working. Thousands more fled into the city of Erbil last night. The UN evacuated its staff in Erbil. Our team is unmoved and we will stay. End of quote. We're hearing more and more of that, aren't we? And you're going to hear a whole lot more of it. That's one reason why I want to go hear Shram Hadian. There's a lot of similarities here. This is just the beginning, though. The whole worldwide slaughter of the Jews and the followers of Jesus has yet to take place. They will be hunted down, executed by the millions upon millions. They will be turned in. They will die of starvation. They will die of disease. They will die from the plagues that are poured out upon the earth. They will not be exempt, dear ones. That's what's coming. And these are Satan's two most powerful men to accomplish his purpose to get the whole world to worship him. But what happens? That's the last part very quickly. God's response to those who take the mark and those who do not. Now let's let God speak. Let's let God speak. Number one, God pronounces eternal judgment upon all who receive the mark. No exemptions. Now look, I don't intend to be here. But let's say I am here. I got this rapture thing all wrong. There's going to be a lot of deception. I want you to know deception. The world's already being, even Christians are being set up for the deception. And you're going to be desperate. And somebody comes along that can work incredible miracles, and man, it's going to be, man, I need help. I need help. I'm going to go get this guy. I'm going to listen to his message and so forth. That deception. And here's what God says. He pronounces eternal judgment upon all who receive the mark. And it's going to be an ugly time. You know, receive the mark and be damned. Run for your life and be slaughtered. Some choice, huh? Is there a third in there? Yeah, I like to call it the rapture of the church. But even if that were the case, even if it were the case, I do believe it is, even if it were, understand you've got brothers and sisters around the world that are being slaughtered right now. They're not escaping. And tomorrow, you may not escape either. Chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, by that first point. 14, 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice. (laughs) Loud, they better hear it. They better hear it. It's written in Scripture, we better hear it. If anyone worships the beast and his image 
and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. It's not annihilation. They have no rest day and night. And those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's God's word. And the sad part, the masses of the humanity in the world will take that mark just to survive. Number two, God pronounces a blessing upon those who refuse the mark and are martyred. God pronounces a blessing upon those who refuse the mark and are martyred. Verses 12 and 13, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right blessed. (laughs) Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. But let's pursue that blessing for just a moment. Turn to chapter 22. We're about done. Or chapter 20, I'm sorry. 4 through 6. Those that fled, those that were slaughtered, those who refused to worship the beast and Satan. They refused his mark. Suffer what they may. Verse 4 of chapter 20, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life, and they reigned. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What blessing. High price. Costly. Did he not say there's a cost to belong to him now? Doesn't it make you think soberly myself about, are you willing to pay that price? To live separately? To be mocked? To be laughed at? To boldly share what you know? You know, we're the only ones that know how it all ends. Isn't it great? We know how it ends. We know what's going to happen next. We know how it ends. We're the only ones. I don't mean here in this church, I mean people that belong to the Lord know the scriptures. Dear ones, it'll be a terrible time of deception. The world is being set up for that even now. And I would close with these verses out of the last chapter. Let me read 10 through 12. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong, are you doing wrong? You don't belong to the Lord, really? You didn't put your faith? He says, let the one who does wrong, still do wrong. Keep at it. Keep at it. And the one who is filthy, still be filthy. 
And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Why? He said, Behold, I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, so here we are, end of the book, the Holy Spirit and the Bride, that's you and me, the the church, they say, come. That's an invitation to somebody who's not saved. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. You've heard now, say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's an invitation from Jesus to receive Him and escape the terror. You know, you might, you might escape the tribulation, but if you're not saved, you will not escape eternal damnation. You need to come. Heavenly Father, we thank You. It's a hard text. These are two exceedingly powerful, wicked men beyond our comprehension. We read about them in the Scriptures there in chapter 13, but they're way, way beyond what we've even touched on. Satanic to the core, deceptive beyond words. And Father, I pray for the church. I pray for the church, the body of Christ around the world, because we are susceptible to being so gullible. Show us something that is miraculous, and we tend to believe it's from you. Help us to understand we need to be grounded in the written word of God. Even Peter said, we were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we show you something far more sure than even that. It is the written word of God. I pray that you'll help us to stand firm on it. And Father, we have a danger, a tendency to say, well, you know, okay, that's going to happen in the future. And yes, it's happening in other countries, but I can go home and be comfortable. No, we can't. We're called to stand with our suffering brothers and sisters. We're called to be that salt and light in a world that doesn't want it. Even around us, we live next to them, we work next to them, we do things with them. They don't want to hear that you, Jesus Christ, are their only hope, but you are their only hope. And this day is coming upon us like a whirlwind. It could begin tomorrow. Help us then to be godly faithful, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.